0: Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Well, hey, everyone, I'm really excited that you can join me for this bonus episode. So this actually comes from a recording I did last Friday up at Te Papa, and there were about 200 people in the room, and it was for a conference called Future Prospects for Charity Law Accounting and Regulation. And I was on the organizing committee, so I had been pushing and the rest of the committee agreed that it would be great to have a session about social enterprise. So this was session number eight. And you're gonna be hearing from Louise Aitken, who's the CEO of Akina Foundation from Dana brackman Reiser from the Brooklyn Law School, who is the co-author of the book Social Enterprise Law, which has been really helpful and informative in my own thinking about social enterprise and the role it has to play in the world today. So thank you very much, Dana, and I look forward to collaboration across the world. As well as Kay-Marie Dunn, who's one of the co-founders and CEO of AHAO, and you'll find out about what that is in the episode. As well as from Holly Norton, who's one of the co-founders at Collaborate, and Andrew Phillips from Charity Services. So we had a real variety and each of these people were given only seven minutes to give their take on social enterprise. So let's have a listen to what they have to say and then there's some questions and answers at the end. But just to frame it, here's what I'd written about the topic for the brochure. What I said was, we live in a time when old and new paradigms of thinking are colliding. One example is the idea that charities are the primary way of doing good in our society whereas business is about generating private profits. Social enterprise presents a new conception, which seeks to combine both profit, the traditional domain of business, and having positive impact, the traditional domain of charity, through sustainable businesses. In this panel, we will hear about the current state of social enterprise in New Zealand, how founders are choosing to become charities versus social enterprises, Maori perspectives on social enterprise, different legal structures used overseas, and the limitations for social enterprises wanting charitable status. Right, well we're going to dive straight into it, but if you do enjoy this, keep in mind this is one of dozens and dozens of interviews. And the aim of the podcast is to get some good content, some good stories out there to help build up the ecosystem around impact, and how we can have a positive role to play in our society here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. If you enjoy it, then consider subscribing, check out the Facebook page, there's a Twitter feed, and you can connect with me directly if you're interested in finding out more about social enterprise. Now on to the panel.
1: Always nice to see a well-caffeinated crowd. Um, our next session is on social enterprise, and it's going to be moderated by Stephen Moe of um, Parryfield Lawyers. Um, Stephen always strikes me as the most or uh, well, the best connected person in New Zealand when it comes to social enterprise. He's a great dot joiner and um, also a great cheerleader for social enterprise and the emergence of this um, and more discussion around social enterprise in New Zealand. So um, looking at one of the, the newer paradigms that impacts our charity space. Um, Stephen, over to you.
0: Kia ora koutou, ko Stephen toku no Ōtotahi ao. It's wonderful to be here to be able to chair this session. We have an amazing set of speakers with a diverse range of viewpoints. We're gonna be talking about impact companies, like I mentioned yesterday. I think the term social enterprise is a great one as a stepping stone between where we've been and where we're going, Um, but really thinking about impact is what we're about. If you could look on your tables, uh, you'll see that Te Papa has given us some notepaper. What's written on the top of the notepaper? It says head plus heart, doesn't it? And I think that really encapsulates what social enterprise is about. It's taking the heart of charity, and the head of business and uniquely combining them. In the old paradigm, we thought they had to be split. You acted with your heart or with your head. The new paradigm is there's a way that we can combine them. And that's what we're going to be hearing about from our panelists today. But just before we jump into that, um, I'm holding here an avocado for those of you who can see it. I know lunchtime is coming. Can I have some suggestions for what we could make from this avocado that would be delicious? Guacamole, yep, that's a good one. Chocolate mousse, okay. <laughs> Why not? Yep. Yeah. Sushi? Yep, that's right. So there's a lot of potential in this avocado, isn't there? A lot of amazing potential for our bodies to get nutrients from. And what's the true potential of this avocado? The true potential is the seed that's within the avocado. If you take that seed and if you actually get, this is a real thing, you get toothpicks, you put it in the seed, you put it in some water, it will actually start to grow. And if I had it with me, I would bring a little avocado tree that I've grown from something just like this. And the reason I give that little picture, because I think pictures are so valuable, word pictures and images, is what we're doing here is how can we provide the right ingredients, the right soil, the right conditions to help people grow good ideas. And I think traditionally we may have limited ourselves to only talking about charity at a conference like this, but what we want to do is expand our horizons a little bit and think about business as a means for doing good as well. So we've got amazing speakers. Um, I'm not going to read out bios or anything because they're all in in your book. Um, and I think um, what we'll do is just get straight into it and there will be questions after that. Um, so if I could af- ask Louise Aitken from Akina Foundation to come up and kick us off about social enterprise in New Zealand.
2: Kia ora Louise, Akina Foundation mahi, nō Yeah, I'm privileged to be back, actually. I was here a year ago, and this morning I was thinking about what's happened in a year. Um, And I'm going to talk about a couple of those things, um, but also really um, reinforcing what Stephen has been saying uh, about the role that enterprise with impact, social enterprise, community enterprise, whatever the term that you want to use is, uh, the role that it has in um, adding solutions to our economy To our society and to our environment. Um, I'll just go here. So, uh, a year ago, I couldn't give you this number. I probably estimated it. Um, So, thanks to our friends at the Department of Internal Affairs, uh, we are able to say how many social enterprises we now believe are in uh, New Zealand. 3,711 is the number that I um, am repeating very loudly, uh, contributing over a billion dollars to the New Zealand economy. So this is all based on BIRL research, so it's not something that we just picked out um, from the Akina team. Um, if it was, we'd be $2 billion, I think, to the economy. Um, but um, you know, the one thing that we're missing from this slide, of course, is so what? What's the impact that they deliver? And that's really the fundamental focus of the work that we're doing, is how do we start to value impact that's been achieved through enterprise, which is benefiting our society and our planet? This is a great start. And what we've been doing over the last year is working with the Department of Internal Affairs and lots of other stakeholders. Uh, We've got 13 ministries that are benefiting from social enterprise. Um, And so every month we pull those ministries together. It's like herding cats a bit. Uh, And we talk about what is the role of social enterprise when it comes to... Uh, social development, when it comes to multi-development, when it comes to the environment whether it's conservation uh, whether it's around primary industries how do we unlock the potential that sits within a pretty organic, what has been seen as quite a small sector of our economy to be able to provide solutions and the one thing that has happened I think that's the most important for us over the last year as a sector is what I call our superpower which is the living standards framework Um, people overseas are extremely jealous of the New Zealand social enterprise sector to have such a framework that hopefully we can work within. To be able to articulate our impact across the four capitals means that we can be recognised as delivering more than just the economic benefit. So there's a long way to go within that. I don't know if you've got a topic on the Living Standards Framework here in uh, in this conference, but For us, it's a starting point about how do we recognise the benefit that not only social enterprise is delivering, but certainly within the charitable space, in the language and the consistent consistent language that government will start using. And that's a significant powerhouse for us as a sector, which we're really excited about. And working with Treasury and Statistics New Zealand, etc., to try and understand how we can translate that into a more economic view for non-government entities to use, which is very exciting. So the other thing that we've been working on is uh, the creation of markets for social enterprise. I think this time last year I talked about the work that we're doing with New Zealand Post. Uh, We trialled out how a big organisation like that can bring social procurement into their mainstream procurement processes. How can they understand what procurement with purpose means for them as a business, buying the goods and services that they're already buying. Uh, Their CEO, David, stood up uh, about 18 months ago uh, at the Social Enterprise World Forum that we hosted in Christchurch and committed to bringing three social enterprises into New Zealand Post's um, supply chain in the first year. Uh, we smash that target, as we always do, uh, and we uh, help them deliver six into that supply chain. And what that enabled was not only them understanding the processes that needed to change, the change management within their personnel, the celebration that you can now have through procurement activity, which is anyone from procurement would probably be you know, unaware of that, um, but really celebrating the fact that procurement is a significant lever for not only employee satisfaction, uh, not only helping business to be able to achieve its goals, but also to demonstrate to the society and hopefully to the planet that actually what you buy matters. So what we've done since then is we've launched a procurement program called Forward. Uh, We've now got 14 members of of the buyer group. Their purchasing power is $30 So this is not the tiny little organisations that buy a couple of things, getting catering, etc. This is Fonterra. This is Air New Zealand, ANZ, SAP, uh, all coming together to understand how to unlock this power of procurement. It will develop the markets for social enterprises and impact enterprises to be able to sell the goods and services. It's highly important for us to make sure that that support... It's given on both sides, both the buyer and the supplier. What we do is certify the social enterprises to reduce risk from the buyer's standpoint. Uh, we've got 43 uh, social enterprises already certified, delivering 53 um, categories. So, and it's not just the catering. It's not just the uniforms. It's payroll services. It's waste management. It's legal and accounting support. It's organisations who understand the strength of the activities that they do and have a social or environmental purpose locked in on that. So we will continue to see this number grow. Uh, We will continue to see more businesses move towards social procurement and and understand its potential in line with their charitable giving, in line with their corporate social responsibility. But this will have 10, 100-fold more impact than any corporate social responsibility programme ever will. So this is something that we've seen internationally, and now we're very excited to have it here in New Zealand. So the last thing that I'm going to talk about in my final 26 seconds is the legacy of the work that we're doing. Um, and I, I don't say that term um, faintly. I, um, when we joined uh, partnership with the Department of Internal Affairs, we knew it was the opportunity to fundamentally change the foundations and the support for the social enterprise sector. Uh, Next week we are launching a report which will hopefully enable that. And We are very excited for the support from three law firms including Stephen, Russell McBay and Chapman Tripp and the Law Foundation in getting us to this point. It is a long way to go uh, because the opportunity is to work with central government on how we unlock the potential that sits within our legal structures to support impact enterprise. Um, so look out for it uh, next Wednesday. Um, it's under embargo at the moment, so I can't share it. Um, but it will be launched um, across the media um, at about 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, and we, will, we know we will have a lot of conversation about it. Um, it is really exciting to think that government are open to a conversation and really in line with the living standards frameworks. How can we change how normal businesses run to actually bring impact into the heart of that? So hopefully a year from now, I will be able to give you an update about how potential legislation change is happening. Um, But in a year, it's been a very exciting um, time for us and something that we cannot do alone. So I would like to thank everyone from Sue, Stephen, many in this room who have been along the journey with us over the last year. And I look forward to giving you an update in a year's time. So kia ora.
0: really exciting, um, and I happen to know that you were interviewed for a podcast that goes for about 90 minutes telling your life story, so check that out too. <laughs> um, now we are really fortunate. Um, we couldn't bring her from America, uh, but Dana brakeman Reiser is joining us via Zoom. Um, so she's the author of a textbook, uh, a co-author of a textbook, Social Enterprise Law. And that, that text was actually quite influential for me in my own thinking when I was helping out with the report that um, Louise mentioned. So I'd like to hand over to you. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Can everyone hear me, I hope? Uh, I'm just going to jump in since the time I've been allotted is short. No one's waving me off. Uh, so I've been asked to give an overview of social enterprise uh, in the United States, particularly the legal Uh, Questions And I want to just start off by recognizing that social enterprise is really a pretty contested term, but uh, my focus is on for-profit businesses that are pursuing both profits for owners as well as social good, and they might do so through a variety of models, whether it be innovation or employment or give back or some other kind of uh, model that joins both profits for owners and social good generation. The work that I've done asserts that the fundamental problem that the law can help social enterprises with is uh, really a trust problem. That social entrepreneurs need to be able to trust uh, that investors are committed to their mission in order to access capital and scale up. Investors in social enterprises need to trust that they're not being suckered and that the entrepreneurs and managers are going to actually pursue that uh, social mission and and not just somehow access cheap money and and run away with it or be lazy. Um, So uh, this concern uh, about creating enforceable mission commitments is a place where I think the law can help, although the path that um, U.S. law, at least public law, has gone down uh, thus far I don't think is quite sufficient to the task. Uh, The traditional forms for enterprises in the US are uh, somewhat lacking in providing these assurances about mission and commitment between entrepreneurs and investors. Of course, nonprofit forms uh, under our law are unsuitable because they include a non-distribution constraint. Profits can't be distributed to owners, so this kind of blended uh, uh, business model won't work. For-profit forms are suitable for generating profits for owners, of course, but they only work as long as investors remain mission committed. Um, They don't offer protection for social mission, although both for-profit corporate and limited liability company forms permit a lot of discretion on the part of leadership as long as uh, investors agree to pursue goals other than uh, shareholder value maximization. If shareholders uh, become, or investors in an LLC, become disenchanted with social mission and push for more profit generation, uh, they can ultimately be successful. So it is difficult to provide this kind of assurances uh, in the traditional forms. So a whole range of specialized legal forms have been developed in the US to try to provide greater assurances. The first mover here was called the Low Profit Limited Liability Company. It was a spin on an ordinary LLC. Um, it did a few things. It required the entity to pursue a charitable or educational purpose, um, but only for so long as it desired to do so. And uh, if the uh, activities of the low profit limited liability company veered away from that charitable or educational mission, then it just turned into a regular LLC. And there was no regulatory involvement, no transparency around that, no penalty for doing so. So it didn't really provide that kind of enforceable commitment. Um, It was pretty popular for the first year or two, a bunch of states adopted this idea, um, but then it ran out of steam fairly quickly. More successful has been the Benefit Corporation, um, which is now available under the law of about 30 uh, US states. Um, So for example, uh, Texas has a Benefit Corporation statute a, a company in any US uh, state can incorporate as a benefit corporation under the Texas benefit corporation statute. They don't have to be resident in Texas to do that. And um, What benefit corporation statutes require adopting entities to do um, is again, a bit of a tweak on a standard form, the corporate form in this case, but they, do, they make more changes. Um, so first off is a, around the purpose requirement, benefit corporations must pursue a general public benefit uh, which is defined uh, as a material positive impact on society and the environment assessed against a third party standard. So that means that the benefit corporation itself must use some third party standard to attest to its general public benefit. It doesn't require any kind of outside certification but it does require them to use some kind of uh, outside ruler to measure themselves. Fiduciaries also are required to consider stakeholders and not just shareholder interests, although they're not required to prioritize the interests of stakeholders. In order to exit benefit corporation form, there's a supermajority requirement, supermajority of shareholders must agree, and there are shareholder and public disclosure requirements. Um, This is sometimes confused with a private certification offered by the nonprofit B Lab called B Corp certification the Benefit Corporation is a state law form of organization, whereas B Corp is a private certification. I'll just mention uh, that Delaware entered this fray in 2013 with its own spin on the Benefit Corporation called the Public Benefit Corporation. It's slightly different than the standard Benefit Corporation statute, but since Delaware tends to have an outside ro- outsized role in American corporate law, and um, that's a uh, notable entry. So there have been a lot of laws in a lot of states, but not a lot of uptake by actual organizations. The most recent study we have here is from 2018, which shows fewer than 7,500 entities nationwide are actually using one of these forms. Now there are many, many more social enterprises than that. They don't just seem to be using these specialized forms. I think it's really because the forms don't do a great job of bridging this trust deficit. They both feature kind of unilateral opt-outs where either the managers in an L3C or in a benefit corporation or a Delaware public benefit corporation, the shareholders can kind of unilaterally force a change to remove the mission commitment. And there's really limited enforcement. Investors are the only enforcement actors here. And those are the ones we're worried about in a lot of these cases. And disclosure compliance is dismal. Uh, None of the studies we have show a compliance rate for these disclosure obligations of even 10%. Uh, It's possible that we could improve legislation here in the U.S., provide a mission prioritization mandate, uh, put in place resources to create an enforcement architecture, but I doubt that uh, will happen. Um, I also worry that uh, kind of propping up these forms might create a backlash where traditional corporations, which currently have a lot of flexibility to pursue social interests, uh, would would, uh, find that discretion narrowed. Um, so my own view is that a lot of private ordering is uh, the better solution here, and in the book that uh, Stephen mentioned, I articulate a lot of different opportunities where lawyers and deal makers can help provide these mutual assurances of uh, mission commitment between entrepreneurs and investors. So far, that's the view from the U.S. I hope that's around the time that I was supposed to speak for. Uh, thank you very much.
0: that was great. Thank you so much for that. And I think um, the quality of the speakers that we've been getting at this conference has been incredible and um, just shown by that. Um, I'd like to move now to Kay Marie Dunn. And I think with social enterprise in New Zealand, we have a unique opportunity to craft something which is world leading. And one of the distinctive things which has actually been mentioned several times in this conference is Te Ao Māori. And so, what, we've, um, what I've asked um, Kay Marie to talk about is her perspective on social enterprise, because I think there's a richness and a wealth there that we could be tapping into. So, over to you.
4: Kia ora katoa. koutou, I te taho papa he uri tēnei no te Taitokerau, uh, no Te napuhi Ngāpuhi Ngāti Kahu, a tōku mama he uri ia no Waikato tainu nati Mahanga, uh, no Ngai Tā Manuhiri, uh, no Ngāti Kahungunu, uh, tēnā um, My name is Kay Marie uh, and today I'm going to uh, speak from a range of different perspectives. The very first portai that I'm going to wear uh, is the Special Projects Manager for Māori Women's Development, Inc. Our organisation has been in existence for 31 years, um, and we've been committed to supporting wahine Māori and their whānau through the provision of finance, in particular low-interest loans, um, and we've now uh, developed a series of programmes in business uh, and financial capability, and we also focus in on rangatahi, For the last four years that I've been with the organisation, we've also taken a significant uh, direction as an organisation to explore social enterprise because 80% of the wahine that we're connecting with in our communities are talking about not just social enterprise but oranga, well-being. And so with that frame, uh, we are having to adjust ourselves to explore well, what does oranga look like from not just a te ao Māori perspective uh, but actually how do we create uh, enterprises or pākehi whai kaupapa, uh, businesses that follow purpose, uh, that one, uh, as uh, Stephen mentioned earlier, is about uh, being successful and sustainable in business, Uh, two, the ngākau, the heart, how is it that we can enable our aroha for our people uh, to be enhanced? Um, and then the third addition to um, what's on top of your pads today is the waydoer. So how do we invoke and enable spirituality among our people to flourish? Um, and that connects itself to regeneration. So how can social enterprise be utilised as an instrument to help regenerate and heal our communities uh, and also be utilised as an opportunity to heal uh, and support us as, uh, as humanity on this uh, planet with very scarce resources? So, uh, part and parcel of our work, first and foremost, is a partnership with uh, Akina. um, Because we believe, one, we don't uh, have the expertise to be all things to all people, so it's really important that we forge a strong relationship uh, with Akina. Secondly, we then uh, co-created a pathway forward um, as part of the social enterprise development plan to really explore, well, what does social enterprise actually mean to Māori? Because uh, as, uh, my colleague uh, has spoken earlier around um, the importance of social enterprise and the significant contribution to our economy, perhaps Dim have a different perspective, and one of those perspectives in particular is that social enterprise is not actually new. We've actually been doing social good, looking after the well-being of our people uh, for as long as we've been here in Aotearoa. So is it that uh, Dim are finding social enterprise as a term uh, different? Um, or is it something that's still semi-foreign to us as a people because it's actually business as usual and it's actually what we do and how we roll. So that's been really interesting for us to navigate. Um, And then last year I was privileged to help coordinate uh, a national uh, series of hui, of community conversations around well what does social enterprise mean to you? What type of support do you require as a Maori social entrepreneur? Um, And what kind of support do you require Um, to enable your mahi to flourish. So our people, and there were around 500 participants across 15 national hui, said three things. One, a by Māori for Māori, yet to benefit all, is a great approach for our communities. They don't want people to fly into their communities, tell them how to do things, and then take off afterwards. So secondly, that leads to capability building. How are we able to strengthen and support Māori to uh, develop their social enterprises in a way that works for them, and thirdly, access to capital. So we may all know that the current philanthropic um, mechanisms, capital mechanisms, is not necessarily uh, broad enough to support a different direction and enterprise that incorporates tikanga Māori, uh, our values as a people, uh, as well as our aspirations to support the people that need it the most, as well as solve some uh, significant wicked problems. So the second um, dimension that I'm really proud to talk about today uh, from MWDI is that we see problems and we work hard to solve them. So access to capital has been a significant issue, so we partnered up with Pledge Me and we co-created an indigenous platform called Takuha, which is a uh, education program to support our people to understand how to utilize the power of our crowd to create uh, capital opportunities to grow enterprises at a grassroots level. So um, that's a bit about us. I've got a final two minutes to now switch for a moment and now speak, at, um, speak about this from an entrepreneurial perspective um, with, uh, as a co founder of a blockchain startup called Aho. Now, Aho is an uh, Indigenous digital identity. A platform, our aim is to enable our people to connect with each other using Papa, but actually to be able to utilize this digital platform and utilizing blockchain to help increase and enhance trust and to help support us to have a greater relationship with our tribes. Now when I think about the law, And how it has served me as an entrepreneur, considering all the things that I know and all the relationships and connections that I have, has it enabled me and my co-founders to create a constitution that not only incorporates our values, but actually enables us to be able to operate our social enterprise from a tikanga Māori perspective? what does that actually look like? So you can put your values inside your constitution, but when you bake it into the DNA of your organization and then try to actualize that, what does that actually look like? Now I really have to say thank you to Stephen because he he has been gracious uh, to support me in my thinking around this. Um, But we have to ask ourselves, is the law at this point in time enabling and supporting Maori to create the vision that we have for ourselves at a community level, um, but also enable our tikanga to be able to flourish. And it's really hard because we're not a homogenous people, eh? So uh, our hapū, our whānau, we all have our different practices, but how can the law enable us, not only protect us, but actually enable us to have a mechanism and an instrument that supports us to do business and enterprise in the way that we need um, and that is fitting for us as a people. Finally, um, I have to uh, mihi to a good friend, Naho Davis, um, who always puts a widow or challenge out to the people. He says, who's not in the room? So there are 200 people here and um, from a, ra- a wide range of sectors, um, but I'm also mindful, and I just have to mihi to the Maori that are in here, but in regards to our people uh, being present in these spaces, my question to you is how are you enabling are uh, utilizing your privilege to create meaningful partnerships within our communities so that our people are not just uh, recipients of the law, uh, recipients of charity, but actually true partners in enabling us to make uh, adequate decisions to support our communities to thrive. So just want to think about that, leave that with you today. Um, my final part is really, um, Māori social enterprise is growing. And I have to again thank Arkina for giving us the space um, and the opportunity to showcase some of the most significant, fastest growing uh, businesses that I've had the privilege of working with. Because we've put intensive wraparound support, um, tools, templates, um, but the one piece that we still need to unlock is capital. So the other part is um, in my journey with Arkina and through Maori Women's Development Inc. Is that all of the amazing initiatives that are coming to our attention. My number one priority is how do we open the door and open up the opportunity for Maori to participate. Nourida ten akoto ten ora tato katoa.
0: Thank thank you so much. That was great, and I love the challenge. I think we can all apply that to whatever circumstances we're in. Um, That's really wonderful. Um, Next up, we have Holly Norton, who's one of the co-founders of Collaborate. And the reason I asked her to speak to you is that she's struggled. Is she a social enterprise, or should she be a charity? How do you go about making that sort of decision? So I'd love to hear what you have to say, Holly. Thank you.
5: Hi, everybody. Thank you for letting me come along today and um, share our story. Um, So as mentioned, Collaborate is a social enterprise. The um, easiest way to describe what Collaborate is, is it's essentially Tinder for volunteering. Um, We match volunteers and anyone in the community who has skills, who has passion, who has time with community groups, organizations, any individual who is doing a social good who could use those time and skills. Um, Currently, We are a limited liability company. However, we're 100% volunteer run. Uh, We're currently non-profit, and mostly are not really generating the revenue to run our enterprise entirely at this point in time, although have revenue streams that are sort of starting to build up. So it seems like a bit of a weird place to sit, being a limited liability company, who is a purpose-driven business run by volunteers. Um, So I thought that I'd basically just give you a bit of a picture of our journey because we've probably spent hundreds of hours debating what that we should be and the choices we've made along the way, and then a bit of the trade-offs that we're kind of making in that decision. So the reason we started out was essentially uh, me when I was 22 was volunteering for this peace and conflict resolution charity. We offered refugee support programs in New Zealand, and it was at the time that the refugee crisis was in the media in about 2015. There was all of this. How can we help? How can we support? And then I was sitting in an organization that had programs that was trying to support, and we just couldn't operate because we didn't have enough volunteers. So there was this really obvious disconnect. There's people who want to help, and there's people who can offer services and finances to do that, and it wasn't connecting. So essentially, I started a meetup group. Um, the meetup group grew from about seven youth charities back in the day. And after a while, we sort of looked at these kind of platform economies and things that were taking off, Tinder and Uber, and we thought instead of adding meetings on top of everyone's day jobs, if we could just tap into that and if we could just build this tech platform that had that speed and ease of connection, how awesome would that be to bring us all together? So at that time, we had no idea about A, building a tech product, or B, hadn't even thought about the legal implications of what we might be about to undertake. Um, and essentially, as we went out there and started talking about it, that group of seven people grew to being about four hundred people over about eighteen months involved in shaping and designing this product. Um, the very first choice that we had to make is when we realized that we were ready to build a product. We had this like designs all kind of drawn up, four hundred people behind us, and we wanted to go into an accelerator program or some way that we could get it built. We kind of looked around a bit at grant funding. We figured out the best way was actually to join an accelerator here at Tupapa, but in order to do that, we had to be a business, which didn't really seem to fit what we were doing because at that point in time, it was 400 volunteers giving their time to build something we all thought we were passionate about. But we did it and we registered it as a business. It was the fastest and easiest thing to do. And then we came out at the end of that accelerator, and as accelerators tend to kind of prep you to do, you're kind of prep for investment. So we're like, right, well, this seems the next step. We now have this matching platform, and the next stage is this really awesome community organization volunteer management platform, but that's going to cost us about $400,000 to build. So investment seems the logical next step, and maybe we can monetize that. So we went through about three months of going through investment negotiations, and basically at the end of it just realized that in order to monetize a platform like that, 90% 90% of the charities in New Zealand are small. The rate that you can charge charities to use a platform like that, you're just not going to get the high enough returns on investment for a, basically a bunch of, at this point, 25-year-old girls to raise $400,000 in capital with no proven business experience. <laughs> so um, after those negotiations, we went, look, the most realistic way for this is just going to be a full charity. That's fine by us. We're not in it for the personal gain. We're in it because this is what we're passionate about and we see this need. So we're like, yep, we're going to register as a charity. We'll just figure out a few things along the way. And in the process of while we've been sitting in that, deciding about transitioning to being a charity and getting support from people like Stephen around, what would that trans- transition actually look like? And how should we structure ourselves? Um, we then realized that we actually did have a business opportunity that was much more relevant uh, sort of on our doorstep. Have I? Yeah, yeah? OK. <laughs> Sorry, I talk so much. Um, So that was in the fact that it was corporate volunteering. So corporates were knocking on our doors and saying they wanted to use the platform. And that was the first time we went, hey, there's some people here who have the capital who can actually fund what we're doing, um, who can fund the technology that we need to build, and we can create a really effective revenue model around that. But in order to actually run that, um, we probably want to stay as a limited liability company for a bunch of reasons. So now what we're doing is sitting within that, testing out that revenue model, and exploring and making a call in about six months based on how much revenue we're able to generate from that new business model whether we actually go full charity and just accept that, or whether we actually have a limited liability company that is owned in part by a charity so that we can protect our values by gifting a lot of the shares towards that. To do and set up that structure looks like it's gonna cost us about $30,000 to $40,000 is kind of the quotes that we've got, so it's not something we can jump into and we have to do a bit of research. And I guess the other kind of caveat that I would put around our decision making is that because of what we do being this sort of technology solution, we're not an easy fit for grant money either. Um, You know, if you're knocking on people's doors asking for hundreds of thousands of dollars to build fancy technology, it's not the kind of outcome-driven grants that typically sit in the charity sector. So, essentially, a self-generating revenue model is our number one way to go, and it's just how do we set that up to protect our values whilst maintaining this image of efficiency that'll help our business, um, but also building that trust that we are purpose-driven. That's the reason that we're there with the charities that we support, which is about 320 across three countries now. So, yeah, that's a bit of a picture.
0: That's great, thank you so much. And I think you can hear there, can't you, the tension between the different options and how do you choose, which way do you go. And and I'd encourage those of you in the room who aren't familiar with Collaborate, why don't you Google them, find them, because they are offering this amazing opportunity for charities to connect with willing volunteers. Um, and I, I think I heard a podcast with you as well, so um, the, our final speaker um, is Andrew Phillips and he's going to give us a perspective um,
1: from Charity Services. Thank you, Stephen. Um, now, um, we go from these great social enterprises and have to put back on the mantle of Queen Elizabeth I, and going back into the charities world and try and give a, a little bit of an um, explanation of the boundary between charity and social enterprise, um, where there's potential and where there are some limits. Um, so as we've heard, social enterprise can take many different forms, but what, they, what all these forms seem to have in common is that they combine uh, a desire to achieve social good with commercial methods. Um, and. As there are many shades of gray in this space, especially between charity and social enterprise, I thought it'd be useful to define three main types that I want to talk about. Um, First, charity fundraising businesses. So we have talked about those a lot in this conference so far, but they're the ones um, with unrelated businesses with activities to fundraise, but that are registered as charities. So I'm talking about like an op shop connected with an environmental group, or maybe a breakfast cereal company connected with a church. Um, second, there are charities that operate as businesses. These are groups that use commercial methods, but they achieve charitable purposes through those methods. And so, think a university that advances education, or a hospital that promotes health. Um, finally, as we've been talking about, there are social enterprises that are structured in some way to do good to um, whether it's in their constitution or in their ways of operating, um, but they also allow for private profit. Um, Now, in New Zealand, unlike other common law jurisdictions, um, well, not all common law jurisdictions, but some common law jurisdictions, charities have for a long time been able to carry out unrelated businesses to advance their purposes through fundraising. Um, There are some limitations when it comes to tax benefits if the funds are applied internationally, but fundraising for charitable purposes has essentially been accepted as a charitable purpose in of itself. but for a social enterprise to qualify as a charity, it can't provide private profits to an individual or an organization as an independent purpose. It can pay an organization or an individual market rates for a service, but no one can draw down a dividend or other compensation driven by its profitability. Although, as we know, social enterprises often include um, entities that don't operate with hopes of um, significant dividends or profits, the owners might want to build up capital um, in the enterprise to look at selling it in the future or scale up rapidly at some time in its operation. Um, But social enterprises can become charitable by excluding profit through its constitution or trustees and consequently be registered as a charity. Um, This does involve some limitations. Um, once you are charitable, you can't just decide to exit the charitable sector and become a for-profit group without some consequences. Um, on deregistration, a charity is subject to inland revenue rules um, related to the disposal of assets. And in cases where there is an indication that a deregistered charity is, um, intends to make a profit, um, we, um, Charity Services, may make a referral to the Attorney General, who, as protector of charities, can seek to have that um, all the assets applied for charitable purposes. Um, despite these limitations, we know that there are a lot of businesses operating as charities. I think um, the, someone said that yesterday, the tax Working Group report said something like 30% of charities have trading arms, um, which is quite a significant number. We know there are a thousand limited companies on our register and a, um, and a similar number that report trading in their annual reports. Um, but in practice, This line between a social enterprise that profits individuals and a charity can be greater than it seems. The promotion of social enterprise itself is charitable. Um, Akina is a registered charity in New Zealand, um, and that's because Akina seeks to improve the social um, enterprise industry for the benefits of the public rather than the industry itself. Um, Fair trade is another good example as it seeks to improve for-profit industries so that they can help the most vulnerable and use sustainable methods. Um, Charities can also benefit for profits Businesses in many different ways. They support businesses through constructing ramps to improve accessibility, or support them to remove, um, to reduce waste, or improve environmental outcomes. Um, In deprived regions, supporting businesses directly to bolster the region's economy can be charitable, and there's no issue. Well, there's there's usually no issue with these kinds of entities registering as a charity. one issue that does arise um, that's fairly controversial is when an, the applicants have applied with a fundraising purpose, but also have a clear purpose to carry out the business activities of purpose in and of itself. Um, a good example is the Karmic Charitable Trust that was declined by the Charities Commission before um, Charity Services and the Charities Registration Board came along. Um, here, a charity sought to raise funds from selling cupcakes and T-shirts, Um, but indicated that its officers would be making significant salaries. And after that, there was no information provided that the trust would ever make a profit. Um, A similar situation arose with the Southern Cross Charitable Trust, where the charity loaned a large amount of money to a related business for the purpose of raising funds, but there was no evidence that private business would ever be able to pay the charity back. And in fact, many of the businesses had already gone into liquidation and the charity continued to prop up those businesses with its charitable funding. The public benefit the charity is registered for is to fundraise for charitable purposes. So there must be some indication that a profit is possible through its activities. Um, most charities won't um, struggle to establish this, but often when the business is new, um, and it doesn't exist as part of a pre-established structure like an EWI structure, um, and there's no evidence the business will do anything but exist for itself, there might be more evidence needed before they can register. Um, As I trust is evidence, um, these issues get quite complicated, and the questions of balancing public and private benefits are more usefully considered on a case-by-case basis rather than thinking of these principles. Um, And we have to really consider carefully those planned activities of the group. Um, As previously mentioned, if the charitable business is not set up for a fundraising purpose, um, hospital and university type examples, it wouldn't need to demonstrate um, it can raise funds, just that its activities are connected with a charitable purpose. Um, Takeaway a, a is for most social enterprises is that if you want to be a charity, you can. It just comes with some limitations. You won't be able to profit from your activities, and you genuinely have to be set up for advancing um, a charitable purpose. I'm also conscious, um, with 30 seconds remaining, um, that um, the approach of the, the Independent Charities Registration Board and Charities Services in how the law is applied in this area um, isn't agreed with by all professionals, um, and and it's one of the many issues that's currently being dealt with as part um, by the policy group as part of the um, the, the modernization of the um, charities act. And if you uh, this is a really good opportunity. If you disagree with this approach, um, or think that things should change, or even if you think the approach makes sense, um, I, I encourage you to make a submission. This is a good opportunity. Although, the, I mean it's not a first principles review into the Charities Act, it's still a really great opportunity to kind of, in these really thorny areas, to change the way we do things for the better of everyone. So that's me. Thank you very much.
0: I'm the videographer as well as the moderator <laughs> um well that was fantastic i think you'll agree there's a, such a diverse range of voices on that panel um we have time for some questions if you'd like to go to the back i have two questions um the first for you louise just i know you've been to different um conferences like social enterprise world forum in scotland last year um can you just give us a perspective what do people outside of new zealand think about what's going on here
2: um, First of all, they're pretty jealous. <laughs> um, the one thing that we get asked a lot is how do you have a relationship with government in the way that you do? Um, people are really um, kind of overwhelmed to think that it's as easy as it is in New Zealand <laughs> compared to their own countries. And and that's really evidence of the fact that not only are we a relatively small country, uh, but a lot of government departments have recognised that they don't have the expertise to try and move things forward. So they often want to partner with organisations um, that are you know, on, the, on the other side of the coin from them. So that's been one thing we hear a lot. Uh, the other thing is that we haven't yet made decisions that some of them are regretting that they made. So when it comes to legal structures, when it comes to, I mean, certainly the, the conversation that, that Dana had is... We can look at this and cherry pick the stuff that we think will be good for the uniqueness that New Zealand has. Uh, so there is a lot of eyes on us as a country. Um, and the third thing is the the power of Te Ao Māori. Um, both Kay, uh, Kay Marie and I were in Scotland last year, uh, and people were really impressed with how New Zealand, Aotearoa New Zealand, is starting to really. Um, strengthen the power of our indigenous enterprise. And what we can do globally is demonstrate that, like Kay Marie said, social enterprise has always existed in indigenous enterprise. So what's the power that we can do to demonstrate that globally and to make people aware that this isn't a new thing, that this is something that has always put the people and the planet first? Um, so we've got that responsibility um, as a small country this side of the world to actually influence what could happen in significant economies. Um, and that's something we take um, you know, with a great weight.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's great. It's, um, it's, it, New Zealand can be a test case in a way of, of what works and learn from overseas. Um, I'm going to go to some questions at the back, but before I do that, Dana, you, you haven't studied New Zealand or anything, but listening to the people who've spoken today, does anything sort of stand out to you from, from the perspectives that have been shared?
3: Well, one of the things that I'm always reminded of when I, I participate in international panels is when thinking about how to enable a, a growing sector like social enterprise sector, it's really important to consider the baselines, uh, and that to recognize that the baselines differ in in different countries, and can even differ within countries, uh, you know, within different regions or cultures. And so, I was very interested to hear about the New Zealand perspective that fundraising for charity is itself a charitable purpose. That's very different from the American perspective, um, and I. I've, I've heard uh, in speaking to others in, in many uh, commonwealth countries, uh, the idea of a profit maximization norm is not nearly so strongly uh, uh, articulated in many other uh, business organization uh, regimes in other countries than uh, certainly than the Delaware regime here in the U.S., but there's even diversity across the U.S., and that norm tends to be overstated even here. But if you have a different kind of baseline about what is charity and what is business, then the kinds of uh, tweaks or accommodations that would be helpful uh, or necessary for social entrepreneurs and uh, impact investors to get together and and to be able to trust their, each other's mission commitments are going to really differ. And so having a kind of sensitivity to that, I think, is so important, and you know, many kind of Uh, you know, ideological entrepreneurs who have, you know, come to to tell about the social enterprise in their own uh, experiences and and make recommendations don't necessarily take uh, as much account of those differences as I think is important to do in order to really be successful. Mm -hmm.
0: Thank you. That's that's really helpful. Um, We have a question at the back. Sorry, we're just going to get you to use the other microphone.
6: (laughs) Sorry. Um, Jenny Gill from the philanthropic sector. Um, We in the philanthropic sector are also struggling to work out how to engage with social enterprise. And a number of you have mentioned the issues for you about applying for grants and the issues for us as funders about allocating grants for enterprises that may also be for individual profit, and it may be a question actually for you, Stephen, but I think there needs to be some thinking on both sides of this, because there's a huge pool of philanthropic capital in New Zealand, and I think there's a lot of interest in various philanthropic entities about, because it's clear that this is coming up from the sector, Mm. but at the moment I think it's not clear what the structures are that we need to be thinking about to actually facilitate that.
0: Can I switch, so the question is to me, but can I switch it to you? What, what What's your feeling from that side as a philanthropic funder?
6: My feeling is that philanthropic funders want to be able to invest in the sector, mm-hmm. but don't necessarily see clearly how to do that. So, for example, for a philanthropic funder to, to take an equity stake yep. in something is... Possibly difficult. I mean, we can give funding to a because they're a charitable entity, but when you actually come to the businesses themselves, then it gets more complicated. Mm-hmm. So I think we need some clearer legal structures on both sides mm-hmm. in order to be able to facilitate you, that. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Louisa. Um, yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right, Jenny. And uh, you know. You have been one of the leaders in this conversation for a long time around um, philanthropy New Zealand and others. So um, it's really exciting to think of the conversation that we can have post the launch of our research, because it actually pulls in exactly that. Um, And we know that philanthropy are a significant enabler of social and environmental outcomes. So how can you feel supported in being able to make decisions um, more than the ones that you can make now, and whether it's from granting or whether it's by the use of your endowments and, and obviously leading into impact investing. So it's really exciting to think of the conversations that are ahead, um, and I know we, um, we will be working very closely with you and particularly Sue from Philanthropy New Zealand to get that, that voice um, and the needs of the philanthropic uh, sector included in the conversations uh, with central government.
6: And I think what could be helpful is some legal models Absolutely. But identify how you might proceed to be an equity investor. How might you proceed um, if you just want to make a straight round, right. How might you proceed mm. if you want to do exactly. debt or
2: loans? And the incentives that may be um, possible as a result of that, which you know, if you look at France and, and other countries, they have that. Um, so you know, how do we explore that um, as key stakeholders altogether? Um, mm. Which is really where we want to get to as the next step of the launch um, from the launch next week. Mm.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, Louise, you should do a report and maybe release it next Wednesday.
2: <laughs> yeah, we, we may well do that. Thanks to Amber and yourself you know, and the Law Foundation, great charity helping us with that, so yeah.
0: That's great, thank you. I, I think just to pick up a little bit on that, I know there's another question at the back. Um, the fascinating thing is to think about these paradigm shifts that are happening and worlds colliding, right? And think about 30, 30 years ago, you know, if you got on a plane there was a lot of people smoking, right? And today, that just doesn't happen. And in the same way, if we think about investing, what do people invest in? They're looking for commercial returns. I think in the future, people are going to be saying, well, yeah, I want to get some return, but what else are you giving me from my investment? And that's, we'll have to do another session one day on impact investing, because that's a great topic in itself. Um, Did, was there any other question at the back?
2: short, I probably should take it off as well.
5: (laughs) Um, Jessica Bell, Melbourne Law School. I was really interested in the theme of governance that's come out really strongly today. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was thinking to what you said, Dana, about fiduciary duties to wider stakeholders. And I was thinking about, uh, Kay Marie, your comment about who gets to be in the room and who gets to seat at the table. And I was wondering if you could expand on what those fiduciary duties to, to wider stakeholders might look like in practice in this social enterprise model where they could be involved in decision making perhaps more directly.
0: Let's go to UK, Marie, if, you, if that's okay. I was going
4: uh, to pass it over here. <laughs> <laughs>
6: um,
4: look, I think that you know, one of the most important dimensions of um, doing business or, or connecting with communities is relationships. And without sounding trite, how do you, do you enforce uh, a process, especially if, um, with, with my hoe hat on, how do we enable or encourage uh, within our company structure a process when we can actually actively give back to our, to our communities? Then you've got to drill down and go, well, which communities specifically are you speaking of? And then actually, what does that look like? So thankfully, we've got some scope to be able to design that process. However what could that look like enshrined in a document? Um, but then the other part of me also says, well, our, our uh, court of law um, is our marae. So that is, the, that is the place. Our wharirui is the place where we wamanga, we talk, uh, we engage, we connect. Um, and so is the law also a hindrance to our ability mm-hmm. to be able to operate um, as Māori in the way that is natural to us as <coughs> Um, But that, again, is not uh, limiting uh, the reality of other Māori that may not necessarily be uh, engaged uh, within our culture in those ways. Mm -hmm. So I'd be really interested, Dana, to ask you again, what could that look like um, from a legal perspective and then what could New Zealand take um, from the work that you've done in the States already? Sure. If I
3: can jump in. so the, the current models that we have for legal form don't really push fiduciary duty uh, that far. Um, the lim- low profit limited liability company doesn't address fiduciary duty at all. The benefit corporation and Delaware public benefit corporation models do. Um, but the benefit corporation model just requires fiduciaries to consider the interests of other stakeholders. Now, this, this may be a kind of a nudge, right, that if you're forced to consider others' perspectives, then you're more likely to actually act on them. But there's no kind of social mission prioritization requirement uh, in, in that statute. The the board members might have you know much longer board meetings where they have to talk about the impact on all these various constituencies, but then they could consistently favor shareholder return every time if they chose to do so. And since the shareholders are really the only ones with any power in the organization, you could imagine directors making that decision. Um, The the Delaware statute is a little different and requires fiduciaries to balance the pecuniary interest of the shareholders with the the social mission of the organization. But that term balance is not defined and we don't have any case law. So we don't really know what that's going to mean uh, in practice. My own view is that if you want to really distinguish under American law, a social enterprise form meaningfully different from the standard business forms that are out there, there would really have to be a kind of on balance, this organization prioritizes its social mission
6: over profit.
3: Not in every single decision they must uh, you know, forfeit return, but on balance and overall, courts would have to make a finding that fiduciaries are, uh, are behaving in a way that favors social mission over financial return. Um, that would really make for a distinct Type of entity that does not exist currently under American law. We, ha- we don't have any statutes that actually do that yet. But I think that's what was needed to really kind of brand these uh, organizations who took on that form as kind of meaningfully different in a way that entrepreneurs and investors could rely upon. And so could communities. And I think really the next frontier, and some others in the U.S. are doing some work on this, is how to get beneficiaries involved in, uh, in that conversation rather than just having directors as a proxy. Um, and I think that's a really important thing. It sounds like in New Zealand, you all have a lot of experience, uh, you know, in creating structures to make that uh, dialogue happen. And so I think uh, that's another place where many in the world could learn from your experiences. Mm-hmm.
4: Stephen, mm-hmm. can I just quickly add something? Sure. So something that I'm finding really interesting, and it's emerging uh, in Aotearoa, uh, is the exploration of, um, of Papatuanuku, Mother Earth, being a director within business entity or within a social enterprise. So uh, yesterday I'd heard a case study of where, um, excuse me, I may be incorrect, but I thought it was pretty cool, um, that Tuwoi had um, uh, invited Jim Bolger to sit in a particular board and his particular viewpoint that he had to hold was from Mother Earth's perspective. So you can imagine all of his experience, that was the only perspective that he was able to bring to the table. So I thought that was quite cool, um, but I'm also uh, mindful and aware that there are some brilliant minds at the moment who are looking at um, uh, Waikato River and Pungaringa being uh, two into legal entities, and um, what that might look like if if Papa Tuanuku could speak um, and be a had really a fiduciary interest inside. Um, the structure of an entity. So I think that's pretty far
0: out, but I also think that's pretty cool, and it's also responsive to where we need to head as a nation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's well, the, you came to a charity law conference, right, but how many challenges have been laid out here? <laughs> um, but hopefully this session has shown you that there's a lot going on in the social enterprise world, and I actually think, you know, if, if you look at train tracks heading in a direction Charity and what's going on here, and social enterprise, we're kind of on the same direction, and that's why we wanted to have this session so that you all could be challenged to think about it. And I can guarantee you, at some point for those of you charities, somebody's going to say, "Hey, should we have a social enterprise? What does this mean? How does it fit with what we're doing as a charity?" Mm-hmm. Um, so the thing I'd like to leave with you is that image of the avocado. We're all here. The the. The spirit in this room is how can we help people, empower people in a positive way so that they can plant their seeds and grow the trees that ultimately benefit all of our society. So I just want you to join me in thanking our panel. I think it's been fantastic. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that session. I know for me, um, up the front, it was really interesting to hear all these different perspectives. And I love the different themes that kept coming through. So I hope it was challenging to you all as listeners as well. If you did enjoy it, then consider checking out some of the more than 90 interviews with social enterprises, charities, and not-for-profits, as well as just interesting people. I speak to a huge variety, so you might want to check those ones out. Until next time!